0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at All Indiana Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Ambassador Ken Edelman. He was Arms Control Director for President Ronald Reagan and the author of several books, six of them actually, including the critically acclaimed Reagan at Reykjavik, 48 Hours That Ended the Cold War. And if you want to know about how the 1980s closed from a diplomatic foreign policy and, and quite frankly, are we going to blow each other up perspective? This is the book to read. I've read it twice. It's terrific. Ambassador Edelman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: You're welcome, Robert. Why would you read it twice? Are you a slow learner or did it take you a while to get it? Or
0: <laughs> what? Well, the first did time. Your lip,
1: did your lips get tired or why did you read it twice?
0: I read it. Uh, well, I read it just, in the, I read it a couple of years ago ago when it came out and i read it again in the past week just because i wanted to make sure i knew somewhat of what the hell i was talking about (laughs) i I can't embarrass mitch daniels or dan coates or craig shirley or dwight chapin all of your friends who've come on the podcast before i gotta sound like i'm smart
1: (laughs) Yeah, well they told me you were smart that's why i'm on the podcast
0: Thank you so very much. And Will M. Bowden, of course, who was yeah. just a guest, is amazing. Uh, so let's talk about the book, and then we'll want to talk about your career and kind of the whole time period. Uh, several You've written several books. There are obviously numerous books written about both President Reagan and the latter years of the Cold War. Why did you feel like you had a particular contribution to make from a literary perspective?
1: A lot of the books on Reagan are like Will's book, which are excellent and cover either the whole presidency or his whole life. And like I say, those are terrific. And I have, I would say, two gigantic shelves worth of uh, row by row by row (coughs) of books like that on Ronald Reagan. All right, I probably have over 100 Reagan books. Uh, They're terrific. What I can uniquely contribute is a concentration on one weekend, actually two days, uh, Reykjavik, October 11th and 12th, 1986. And I do that for several reasons. One, and easily, is that I was participating in that weekend. Okay? I was advising Ron Reagan right there. Number two, they were discussing the most important issue of their day, nuclear weapons and the future of nuclear weapons. And number three, this was a time when the two men were in the room together. And Robert, this was for 10 and a half hours. Now, I don't know about you, but (laughs) I've never talked to anybody for 10 and a half hours over two days' time, including my wife, uh, in my life. It's a long time to talk to anybody over a two-day period. But what they were doing in those two days was, unlike any summit or any meeting in government, or even out of government, that I've ever been part of. What was unique about it? It was really them on their own. They were flying solo. They did not have talking points. I know about Ron Reagan, for sure, he didn't have talking points. But when you look at the uh, notes, you realize that Gorbachev was speaking also uh, from the heart and from his own views. And, (coughs) excuse me. The last part I would say about what's unique about this is that we have notes. We have very careful notes by the Americans and by the Russians. They were in the room at the time. They were taking notes at the time. They were professional note takers. It's not a verbatim, but they're notes. And so what we can do and what I tried to do, and I think I did in the book, was put us in the room. You see what they say. You see how they react to each other. You see what they're thinking about. You see their their whole way of proceeding. And in a way that I think is unique, I've never read, I read a lot of history. I've never read another history that says you're in the room with them. You know what they're saying to each other. You know how they're reacting to each other. So I concentrate, unlike the other books, to answer your question, on really what happened over one weekend and what this meant uh, for after that weekend.
0: And the whole world is watching and they know the whole world is watching.
1: Yeah. And and that was kind of fun. Uh, They (laughs) thought it was going, it was announced as a um, meeting that wasn't even going to be a summit. It was going to be to prepare for a summit. Uh, Reagan said explicitly, it is not going to be a big deal. There's not going to be uh, much press interest. Uh, Shevronazi said, I don't think the press will cover it at all. It's a working meeting. Uh, By the time they got to Reykjavik, there were 3,217 accredited journalists there, which is a lot. (coughs) Excuse me. The country was absolutely not equipped to handle an event like this. It was a city of 250,000 people in a country of uh, 400,000 and uh, they just didn't have the uh, um, uh, outside international um, they didn't have the international uh, network or the phone lines to really deal with any of this and so what it was was expected to be a nothing weekend and it turned into be magnificent weekend Reagan took Only 15 or 20 professionals with him. He said he won't need any more. And Gorbachev had a delegation of 300 with him.
0: (laughs) And my understanding is you had to kick the U.S. ambassador to Iceland out of the residence. Um,
1: Well, I didn't kick him out, but the Secret Service did. They came to him. We had, Robert, the year before Gorbachev and Reagan had met for the first time, and that was in Geneva. We had planned that meeting for six months. Okay, Uh, This meeting in Reykjavik was announced about, uh, I think, 12 days before it happened. All right. So six months versus 12 days. The Secret Service went to the U.S. ambassador. Very nice man. And said uh, there's going to be a summit. He was shocked out of his mind. They said uh, the president is going to be in your house. He said, oh, my God, this is the greatest moment of my life. I'm so excited about it. And then the Secret Service said, but the bad news is you won't be. And uh, he said, what do you mean? They said, you know, we know the house, uh, the ambassador's residence, and there's no room for the president and his chief of staff, the doctor, the security guys, blah, 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 a communications guy. And so you'll have to find another place. By that time, by the time the ambassador knew about it, the KGB had, and, uh, had really wrapped up all the other hotel rooms, of which there were not too many, and uh, the ambassador found himself without uh, any place to stay and uh, left in a huff.
0: <laughs> Biggest event in Reykjavik uh, since the last time a Soviet and an American got together, and that's Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky in 1972 right. for the World Chess Championships. Uh, was there some? Was, was there a feeling about how much different the Cold War was in in 86 as opposed to 72? And here you are at well, the same place. Well, in 72 place.
1: they were not talking about nuclear weapons. Okay, and in 72 <laughs> the two chess players didn't have next to them a football, which is a briefcase containing the nuclear codes to blow up the other country. That did not happen in the chess tournament in seventy two.
0: It's probably a good thing Bobby Fischer didn't have the nuclear yes, codes I
1: would in seventy two. <laughs> <laughs> but Bobby Fischer got so excited about uh, Reykjavik and that tournament that he actually became an Icelandic citizen and moved to Reykjavik after uh, winning the tournament in seventy two.
0: It's buried there now.
1: Oh, is he really? I didn't. Yeah, know
0: he's buried there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's put the. The Cold War, and I know this is kind of an expansive question, but I know you can knock it down a little bit, put this period of Cold War history into context. Is it fair to say that after the era of detente inaugurated by President Nixon and and Henry Kissinger in the early to mid-70s, that the early to mid-80s could be described as a bit chillier?
1: It was chillier because Ronald Reagan was a chillier president and he didn't really believe in detente. Uh, his uh, campaign in 1980, when he was running for president, uh, he had the view that, that detente was at either a uh, capitulation or a uh, way to avoid any kind of distinction between our system and their system. And he felt that we were, we were legitimate because the people chose the government And uh, the Soviet government was illegitimate because it was a top down organization where the state told the people what to do. And in our country, we told the government what to do. And so Ronald Reagan had a very different approach from from Nixon, Kissinger, Carter, Ford, and virtually all of his predecessors who thought they're two superpowers. We have to get along. You have to understand the other, you know. You have to work things out. Reagan's view was, you know, okay. I understand all that, but we're legitimate. They're not legitimate. And uh, I'm going to be talking about how they're not legitimate.
0: Would it be also fair to say that in this time period, to use kind of a colloquial term or a metaphor, the East was on the march in terms of geopolitical activity? And the West would say, if not necessarily in retreat, but maybe a little bit uh, catatonic.
1: Well, certainly, from seventy-five to eighty, you had country after country after country falling to communism. Okay, in seventy-five was South Vietnam, was Laos, was Cambodia, was Angola, was uh, Mozambique, um, and um, I think Nicaragua. There were a number of countries that went from capitalism or uh, basically friendly to the United States to communists and friendly to the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. There were virtually no countries that went from communist to friendly to the United States and more capitalist. So, yes, there was a time in the mid to uh, late 70s when communism was on the march and democracy was in retreat.
0: You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Ambassador Ken Edelman, author of, among other books, Reagan at Reykjavik 48 Hours that Ended the Cold War. Ambassador Edelman received his PhD from Georgetown University, which I attended for summer. Remember the uh, Intercollegiate Intercollegiate Studies Institute program? Uh, That was a big deal. Um, I got to go to Georgetown for a summer in 1993. It's a unbelievable place. Of course, spent most of my time on the exorcist stairs just going, wow. Ken Edelman and and his wife actually are experts on William Shakespeare and have a leadership series based on him, on his teachings. My uh, master's subject is mentioned in uh, Shakespeare's Henry V, Sir Thomas Erpingham. He was the commander of the archers at Agincourt. How does William Shakespeare before we get back to Reykjavik, how does William Shakespeare make people better leaders?
1: Well, our, our, if you're doing a marketing ploy for our company called Movers and Shakespeare's, go right ahead. Robert.
0: <laughs> I and love the be, name. That's why I couldn't resist.
1: <coughs> don't be shy about it. We teach leadership. We show scenes from the movie of Henry V. You'll be happy to hear Robert. Uh, for the Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson version of the movie and on how to overcome obstacles, how to set uh, ethical standards and hold people accountable, how to do persuasion, uh, how to run a meeting. And then we show the scenes and then we turn to the audience, uh, the participants, and say, what did you see in there? What lessons can we learn? give us you know lessons that we write them down on a flip chart so there's real take-home value to it and uh, we are I am right now in Philadelphia we have done a series at the Wharton Business School for hmm. I think about 15 years <coughs> several uh, a year and we've had companies uh, that have signed up the US Air Force uh, did a whole series for generals, and uh, we had Army, we had Lucky Martin, we had Northrop Grumman, we had Brathian, we had, you know, SunTrust. We just lots and lots of companies, and it's uh, served us well. We started in 1997, and uh, we're still going strong.
0: Well, I stumbled upon Sir Thomas Irpingham while reading Shakespeare's Henry the Fifth. Because he's mentioned by name, a a cap for your gray old head or something like that is what he says.
1: (laughs) And Uh, his archers at the Battle of Agincourt, which was October 15th, uh, no, October 25th, sorry, Mm
0: 1415.
1: Yeah, Uh, his archers uh, with the longbow proved quite decisive in that battle, even though the French outnumbered them five to one to ten to one. Even though the French were well-rested, well-fed, and his guys were ragged, walking 17 miles a day and dressed <laughs> in rags. Even though the French had armor and cavalry, and he did not.
0: Well, they stuck him in between those two sets of t- trees, and you can't miss. That's
1: right. That's right.
0: I was born, we were talking to Chris Spangle, the podcast, our podcast engineer, for a second to talk about when he came sort of age. I was born in 67. And so I remember uh, the Reagan years very well, proud to be in the army while he was commander in chief. But I also remember that that he came to office with firm convictions. What was the general reaction, especially when it comes to the Cold War and the Soviet Union, communism versus freedom, so on and so forth? What was the general reaction to these convictions among the press and arms control professionals?
1: Horror. (laughs) <laughs> I, I can't think gasping. of a better word <laughs> gasping, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, utter disrespect, uh, disdain. Uh, that's the general thrust. Okay. Ronald Reagan's first press conference in the white house. He's asked about Dayton and he says, I think Dayton has been a one way street. I think they've taken us to the cleaners. Uh, I think that the communists will lie, cheat, and steal to advance their views. Everybody said, oh, my God, president of the United States doesn't say things like that, doesn't give views like that. That is name-calling. That is horrible. That is unpresidential, blah, blah, blah. And two years later, he's with a bunch of uh, people in uh, evangelicals, actually, in Florida, giving a speech. He calls the Soviet Union an evil empire uh, and the focus of evil in the modern world. I happened to be testifying a uh, few days after that with Chairman Les Aspen yeah. of the House Armed Services Committee. That's a Wisconsin. wonderful guy, and I, I was very close and I liked Les a lot. Uh, First question is, wasn't that terrible what President Reagan called Soviet Union an evil empire that's going to make your arms control all the more difficult? It went on and on and on how terrible it was. And I said, well, Mr. Chairman, let me ask you, do you think it was a benevolent country? Do you think it's a benevolent commonwealth? Would that be a better (laughs) phrase than evil empire? And he's, well, I wouldn't say that. Okay. Well, here's a president telling you what he thinks, and we have to now say, was he right or was he wrong? Was evil? Could you say it was evil or benevolent or neutral? Well, it it is evil. Okay. Is it an empire? Is it a commonwealth? Is it a republic? What, you know, what category? It's kind of an empire. All right. So he put the two together. Uh, (laughs) what, what, What are you complaining about? Well, he should have thought it and not said it. Well, he wanted to say it.
0: And Reagan came to office, and he was ridiculed for his supposed lack of intellect. And those of us, or people who weren't around then, and who haven't really studied the time period that well, can't can't picture the million people marching in Berlin or Paris or London or wherever who who thought Ronald Reagan was going to start World War III. And you had Democrats like like Clark. Clifford calling him an amiable dunce and was it was it Hange Johnson wrote the book the liberal reporter for the what was it Washington Post I think sleepwalking through history there was this constant drumbeat that Reagan was just dumb and no one better than you on this highly complicated issue could testify to to his intellectual power and consistency on this issue is that what you saw and you didn't see what the critics wanted people to know um
1: i can tell you this and and don't just take my word for it robert the notes of what's happening in Reykjavik, simultaneous notes by the americans and by the soviets show these men in ten and a half hours of conversation which are unfiltered and without, you know, talking points or anything. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, Ronald Reagan is very impressive on these notes. Ronald Reagan is very impressive in the dialogue. So what you see in the room that he is dealing with, he has the arguments. He has as much knowledge about arms control issues, which are very complicated as Mikhail Gorbachev does. He uh, comes back with, Absolutely apt points when Gorbachev makes a point. So it is very impressive. Last point I would make to you is Robert, is one of my favorite, I have to say myself, footnotes um, um, <clears> on <throat> my revised book because I want the book to come out at the time when the uh, uh, streaming series comes out. When I quote Clark Clifford is calling Ronald Reagan an amiable, amicable dunce. I have a footnote which says, and he was the pinnacle of the Washington establishment. I have a footnote that says, this highest man in the Washington establishment died having been convicted and sentenced for a crime of bribery and theft. Meanwhile, the amiable dunce died having uh won the cold war and i say go figure
0: <laughs> <laughs> well let me say this i'm glad you put that part in there cuz yes cuz he he does and you know i'm i'm a republican obviously and i know that you you were or you've it's
1: was i was cha- I changed not. a little
0: bit in your no, no, uh, political I have not endorsements
1: the, the the republican party has changed okay mm-hmm. i have not changed i'm a conservative OK, I started out as conservative. I was a conservative at college, at Grinnell College, which is the most left wing college uh, America's ever created. <laughs> and uh, I was a member of the Young Republicans then. I think I was the only member of the Young Republicans then. And uh, so and, and I worked in the poverty program for Rumsfeld and for Cheney and, uh, you know, <clears throat> those People and work for rumsfeld three times in my life, and then for Gene Kirkpatrick at the UN, and for Ronald Reagan. I was always a conservative. I am not now a Republican because I don't believe the Republican Party today has anything to do with the values of Ronald Reagan. Okay? Well, the I appreciate of Ronald Reagan, the honesty of Ronald Reagan, the integrity of Ronald Reagan, the fairness of Ronald Reagan.
0: Well, I appreciate you smiling broadly at my old school conservative Ronald Reagan t-shirt that I'm wearing. Yes, was great. That that my, that my I bought one for my son, who's now a senior at Purdue University, and he strides around uh, Governor Mitch Daniels' campus wearing his Ronald Reagan shirt. I said, you're going <laughs> to run into him one time, Andrew, and he's just going to start laughing. Yeah, <laughs> he'll know where it comes from. <laughs> Take us through the internal debate among the arms control, arms negotiator professionals, because any reading of, of Cold War history will say that the negotiators and that the, the, the arms control establishment was bipartisan. You had Nietzsche and you had Warnke and you had others, people like you. So you had R's and D's who were involved in it f- for years. Was uh, was what was, Take us through the debate about how weak or strong the Soviet Union actually was. At this time in the 80s
1: everybody knew the conditions there were not so great okay and it has become accepted wisdom now that the soviet union fell because uh it was an empire that couldn't sustain itself because of economics okay i don't believe that for a minute uh cuba has been poor for 60 years uh, under Fidel Castro, and then his brother Castro, and now the president, and it hasn't fallen. Uh, North Korea has been war for mm. 70 years, <coughs> excuse me, and it has not fallen. Uh, there's, you know, uh, Gibbons wrote in the rise and fall, or uh, the fall and decline and fall of the, the Roman Empire. Mm. He had a great sentence, this intolerable situation And so, you know, you can have these empires and these countries that are poor and uh, don't collapse like the Soviet Union collapsed. So while the Soviet Union was, you know, in poor shape compared not only to the West, but compared to its uh, countries in its empire, it has the only metropole of a great empire which is poorer than the countries it's dominated. (laughs) <laughs> the countries of Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, were always better off than the Soviet Union were, okay? So it, well, while, it was, while it was not in great shape, it was not about to be destroyed or crumbled by
0: itself. How did the president surround himself with a cadre of like-minded people while avoiding being staffed by yes-men and yes-women?
1: Uh, Ronald Reagan was kind of odd in this way. He didn't care that much about party identification, okay? And it's quite surprising in the presidencies that have happened since then, where to get into the White House personnel office, you really have to be a Republican if you're going to be work for a Republican president or a Democrat. When uh, working for a Democratic president, that, that's not how Ronald Reagan thought. He won people who were hardliners, okay? Uh, and he chose people who are hardliners. But I was surrounded, I was at that time a Republican, but I was surrounded by hardliners who were Democrats who, you know, no one really cared what they were. Uh, there was Richard Pearl, there was uh, Paul Nitze. There was my boss, Gene Kirkpatrick, at the UN. There was my predecessor at the Arms Control Agency, Gene Rostow. Yeah. All these were Democrats and they stayed Democrats. And they uh, didn't bother Reagan. What would have bothered Reagan had if they had been of a vastly different view and not gone along with his views?
0: One of the events early in President Reagan's time in office, it keeps coming up in these articles or, or books I've read, and that is the firing in August of 81 of the air <laughs> traffic controllers, the PATCO strike. It was such big news then. I remember it like it was yesterday, even though I was only 13. But what I keep reading is that that made an impression on the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union's leaders. Is that a true statement or is that overstated? And, and do you think that it did?
1: I know that it did, and it was astonishing. What happened was the air tra- uh, air controllers uh, went on strike, even though their contract said that they were not allowed to strike, and uh, they were controlling the air traffic just like they do today. You go anytime you take a flight, just look in those towers; you'll see a lot of people there. Those are the air controllers. Okay, they had everybody over a barrel because if they go on strike. All flights in the United States are off. Okay. That's what people thought. Uh, Reagan's view is that, well, some will strike and some won't. But anyway, they signed a contract. And when they signed a contract, they should live by the contract. Okay. Uh, And plus, they were getting paid very well, to tell you the truth. Anyway, so I remember I was in the White House and I ran into uh, some. Reporters who were long past, but were pretty standard at that time um, for for Time Magazine and columnists. And right in the middle of the crisis, and I said, Oh, what do you think is going to happen? Because I had no idea, even though I was part of the administration, that wasn't my bailiwick. And uh, one of them said, Well, we know what's going to happen. I said, What's that? They're going to invoke the Taft Hartley law. There's going to be a cooling off period. There's going to be a blue ribbon panel and, um, you know, and they're going to work it out. I mean, there's a playbook for these kind of things.
0: Right. All right. That's exactly right.
1: And Reagan's going to pick up the playbook and, you know, just go through the steps. The next day Reagan goes out and he says, you know, I'm going to give them 24 hours to come back to work. And uh, if they don't come back to work, they're not going to come back to work ever. And then someone says, oh, you're firing them? And Reagan at that press conference says, oh, no, I'm not firing them. They're quitting. They signed a contract that they would never strike. So they're, they'd be quitting. They're, once they quit, they're not coming back to work at all. But no, 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 I'm not fired
0: Reagan, the old <laughs> union leader.
1: Yeah, the old union leader. So <laughs> some of them came back. A lot of them did not. Uh, they got a lot of kind of substitute to, uh, you know, fill in. Meanwhile, and uh, everybody was shocked out of their mind. He just went against the, against the playbook, uh, doing something presidents just don't do and previous presidents don't do. And I don't think any other president would have done. And I saw Bill Casey, who is director of the CIA, <laughs> CIA then, and he told me I saw him a week later. He told me there was more traffic, electronic traffic, from the embassies in Washington, D.C. after that strike than there has ever been before. Not that they cared particularly on the air traffic controllers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the United States, but all the embassies were trying to make sense. What is this new administration going to do? Or what? What are these people? They seem like, you know, unpredictable. That's not something that we expect an administration to do.
0: Reagan, the cowboy.
1: Yeah. And he just took took him on. And we have a very good friend, Ted Olson, who was. uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: His poor wife died (laughs) on 9-11, the former Solicitor General. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's a great, great guy. He was working in the Justice Department in the legal counsel office, which is the kind of lawyers for the Justice Department on what interpretation. And he got called that morning to come to the attorney general French Smith's office because, uh, you know, all this was bubbling up and there was a yellow pad that someone had written a response on what the president ruled on this issue, you know, on basically the <clears throat> even though he said they were all quitting the firing of the air controllers. And so uh, and the attorney general said to Ted, uh, sit down right now with this and read it over and, you know, let's get it just right. And so Ted Olson was changing some of the wording and making it, you know, more legal and and everything. And um, and finally, after about five minutes, he looked up, he says, who wrote this, you know, on this paper? Who, who wrote all this that I'm cleaning up on doing that? And the Attorney General said, well, oh, the President did. This came faxed over from the White House. And Ted looked up and he says, it's fine. It's really fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just Call him up and say, go with it, okay? I'm, I'm putting in hitherto fours and weather for years and all this legal stuff, but it's fine
0: we were talking on the Leaders and Legends podcast. He's been very gracious with his time. Ambassador Ken Edelman he wrote the book, Reagan at Reykjavik, 48 Hours That Ended the War. Before we get to the summit, it's always interesting when I when I get a chance to talk to people who've had these amazing careers. But then there's something in their career that I'm not going to say doesn't fit, but that I would never, ever have guessed. And that is the fact that you were the translator. For Muhammad Ali at the Thrilla, or excuse me, at the Rumble in the Jungle in Africa against George Foreman. A, how did you get the gig? And B, what were you translating? And just, I guess, C, what's that like? You've been involved in so many fun things. I can only imagine how fun that was. That was really fun.
1: <laughs> and it happened like every good thing in my life ever happened by chance, certainly not by merit, totally by chance. Uh, I came over to Zaire, uh, now called the Republic of the Congo, uh, because I was a dependent husband. My wife was in the Foreign Service in USAID, and uh, I was one of the first dependent husbands in the Foreign Service. The ambassador's wife didn't know what to do with me, so she invited me to the bridge club on Friday, the flower (laughs) arranging club (laughs) on Saturday, and the stitch and chat club on Sunday. Oh God! And so uh, <clears throat> I was there, <coughs> and uh, went and um, heard that the Ali Foreman fight was going to be there. Uh, by chance, someone had at the embassy had told Don King that uh, I could help out. Um, I don't know who told him and what they thought I could help out with, but I ended up doing some stuff with Don King and, uh, you know, he thought it was valuable. And then when Ali came to town, they needed somebody just to, um, I don't know, show them around and, and kind of translate for, but I was actually, as it turned out, a very, very accurate translator, because I couldn't exactly understand what Ali was saying to me and, (laughs) excuse me, the Zairians uh, certainly couldn't understand a thing I was saying to them. So uh, it was <laughs> he was speaking to me in a English that uh, was hard to decipher, uh, and I was speaking in a French that was Im- <laughs> impossible to decipher. <laughs> so I was actually pretty pretty accurate on that, but I had a lot of fun, and it lasted longer than should have because George Foreman had his eye cut. Uh, during practice then so the fight was supposed to be on september 25th and i have a poster at home that has the fight for september 25th and it actually went on uh september 30th okay no october 10th or something like that about two weeks later so ali was there he was training uh he was working and um you know there wasn't that much to do Uh, my wife and i brought movies to his compound for night and i remember those are the days when they had those movie projectors that you have to put the movie on the film on Mm -hmm. those spigots and then the threaded in there and you know with 14 turns to get the (laughs) movie projector in there and i remember uh, ali and i trying to figure out how those turns go and how you get the film in there and have you know so we could watch this film and uh, we got it we watched these films and you know whatever would come in in the diplomatic pouch and so uh, he was you know he worked out twice a day but otherwise he was kind of without much to do
0: were you surprised he won
1: uh everybody was shocked he won he won in the eighth round he uh had a, a rope-a-dope Where Foreman, who was known as knocking out anything that uh, he Mm. could get in the ring with, uh, kept starting with the sixth round, kept punching and punching Ali, and Ali just took it. And by the time of the middle of the eighth round, Foreman was just exhausted, and Ali came up with that, you know, that rope-a-dope strategy. I don't think his he and his uh, manager angelo dundee had ever discussed it i don't think that it was a viable <laughs> it's kind of a crazy strategy <laughs> let yourself be pounded for two rounds and then come out and knock the hell out of them and the fight was at three o'clock four o'clock in the morning because of tv rights back to the states and uh we were all shocked we could stay- i have a tape uh, robert i have a tape uh vcr that i should get um translated to a cd or put on electronically uh, i get uh, to a dvd and i have a uh, vcr of that fight and it's still wonderful to watch it's still a great fight
0: so if you're right about foreman he's just massive and and it's funny to listen to foreman talk about that fight he's very candid about what happened and you know how how it all took place uh, we could do a whole podcast on Ronald Reagan's quotes and you would know <laughs> them a lot better than I would my favorite one though is the one where he comes to office brezhnev is the leader of the soviet union he dies then andropov becomes leader of the soviet union then he dies And then Konstantin Chernyako becomes leader of the Soviet Union. And I think it's in 85, he dies. So Reagan, who's in 1975, is 74, makes the, when they ask him, why hasn't he met with any of these Soviet leaders? His response is, they keep dying on me. (laughs) Beautiful.
1: He was criticized, it was 1984, and he was criticized by Mondale running against him for re-election. Uh, why don't you ever meet with the Soviet leader? You're the first one since Millard Fillmore or somebody, I don't know what president used, not to meet with the Soviet leader. And that's when he said that quote that you love so much, Robert.
0: <laughs> what was the difference as perceived by by the people within the administration that Mikhail Gorbachev brought to the table that the three sort of World War II era, or at least grew up during that era, uh, Soviet leaders did not bring?
1: Well, for one thing, he was alive, you know, and he could walk down the street without uh, two people under his armpits holding up. And uh, Gorbachev, as Maggie Thatcher, Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher saw in 1984, the year before he became head of the Soviet Union, he liked to debate. He liked to talk about these issues. And he liked the back and forth in a way that uh, the predecessors, uh, you know, <clears throat> through Soviet history never did. And they liked to give grand pronouncements and to state their views and to go on and on and on endlessly. But Gorbachev liked to give and take. He was sharp. He was young. Gorbachev was almost a generation younger than Ronald Reagan. He was 54 at Reykjavik in 1986. And um, so he was just a very different brief.
0: What were your thoughts when you first were briefed on the Strategic Defense Initiative?
1: Well, SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, was a Ronald Reagan invention, basically. It was to do something else if there was an attack on the United States by incoming ballistic missiles. Do something else besides the two options every president had been faced with. Well, option number one was to obliterate the country from which the missiles came, if you could identify that country, but then you'd be killing... Tens of millions of innocent people who had absolutely nothing to do with the launching of that, or secondly, to do nothing and to say we're awfully sorry about that. and, And to say, I'm really mad and you know, to use all kinds of phrases, which was untenable for an American president. This would give a president a third option, which is to shoot down those missiles that were coming into the United States. And Reagan proposed it on March 30th, 1983. It shocked the world because it was very different from the mutually assured destruction doctrine that uh, had been adhered to before that time. And uh, people were very upset. Uh, Gorbachev at Reykjavik, especially for those two days, just went crazy about how irresponsible SDI was.
0: Would it be fair to say that President Reagan's announcement proposal about SDI was met with almost universal ridicule and was subsequently or very quickly dubbed Star Wars and what was clearly a derisive term?
1: Yes, that's absolutely right.
0: When Reagan and Gorbachev met in Geneva in November, I think it's November of 85. Did the administration's arms control and foreign policy teams uh, return to the United States with a sense of hope or optimism?
1: Yes, because uh, Reagan and Gorbachev, even though the, the summit was very stylized and wasn't very spontaneous at all, they seemed to like each other, at least accept each other. Uh, the the um, the, <coughs> excuse me, the conversation was. Uh, Very cordial uh, and uh, wasn't very, didn't result in much of anything. And um, there was a sense, just like Prime Minister Thatcher had said, that you can deal with this guy. You can do business with this guy.
0: You've participated in some incredibly tense and important discussions. Is, Is what you witnessed and participated in at Reykjavik, would you consider that the pinnacle of superpower Cold War negotiations?
1: Yes, absolutely. Because Reagan and Gorbachev were, like I told you, Robert, on their own, talking about nuclear weapons, both realizing there was way too many nuclear weapons, both realizing they were deployed in way too irresponsible a manner, uh, both wanting to end the Cold War in a very far-reaching and far-sighted approach. Uh, and uh, an amazing, amazing two days. That's why I wrote a book about it.
0: One of the themes that's embedded embedded in your book, Reagan at Reykjavik, 40 Hours That Ended the Cold War, is, is President Reagan's leadership. He could have taken a deal or acquiesced or whatever, however you want to phrase it, in a way that would have brought him near universal acclaim. Here's the man who came to power in 81, and he's going to start World War III. Instead, he's walking out of, flying back from Iceland, ready to address Congress, and he's announced a deal that's about reduction, not limitation, which was a key difference between START and SALT. But he didn't do it. Why do you think that he rejected Gorbachev's proviso that SDI research must be confined to a laboratory for a certain period of years, even though he knew as a, as a wily politician, what sort of a claim he would have received had he accepted Gorbachev's deal and announced it to the world?
1: Well, one of the interesting things about the weekend at Reykjavik, Robert, was that Gorbachev wanted to kill SDI, okay? And he offered Reagan all kinds of great incentives in reducing nuclear weapons uh, in order to incentivize Reagan to kill SDI. Uh, One of the amazing parts of that Reykjavik weekend was that that Reagan never even asked us what our opinion of such a deal was, even though we were his advisors. Uh, He didn't because he knew what his opinion was. And that's the one that really counted. His opinion was he wasn't going to give up STI, the strategic defense initiative. He wanted protection of the country on a against incoming ballistic missiles. And he wanted a research program to see if that wasn't possible. Okay. And he was not uh, going to kill that research program and knock it out in the bud. Kill it in the crib uh, because, uh, you know, to satisfy Korbachoff. And so he just wouldn't entertain that. Why not? Because he thought there was a better way to protect the United States than blowing up the other country or than uh, just accepting destruction of American cities without retaliation.
0: We have a few more minutes left with Ambassador Ken Adelman. We're discussing his career, his time in the Reagan administration, and his book "Reagan at Reykjavik: Forty Eight Hours That Ended the Cold War." Excuse me. Two quick questions. One: Would you say true or false? Perhaps nobody in the world had more faith in SDI than Mikhail Gorbachev. True. And what did you think of of President Reagan's? willingness to share the te- SDI technology, because I read a quote, I think, where Mikhail Gorbachev looked at Reagan and says, you won't even share your your milk milking, your cow milking technology. How in the world do you think we're going to supposed to believe you that you're going to share this? And, and do you think Reagan was sincere?
1: Reagan was sincere. I think Gorbachev was right. <laughs> the United States would never share because <laughs> SDI was not an it. It was a whole galaxy of high-tech uh, sensors, trackers, missiles, satellites, you know. Uh, and so there was no way we were going to share it. Mikhail Gorbachev was right. Uh, Ronald Reagan was awfully naive in that.
0: But the, the, the faith and the belief that the Soviets had that the United States technological – complex could create something eventually was strong. They thought it, even if it wasn't working now, were they convinced that eventually the United States will figure this out and then we're in trouble?
1: Absolutely. And what Reagan was proposing was a research program. Let's see how this goes. And what really fried me was the Union of Concerned Scientists said, SDI will never work. Okay. Okay. It's the most unscientific thing in the world to say. How do they know over what period of time, unlimited period of time, with what resource, unlimited resources? I mean, how can a group of scientists say a project will never work? It it, it defies me. I mean, we have right now in our pockets, we have a little device, okay, that (laughs) has more computation power than. The Apollo program ever did, uh, and putting a man on the moon, and we carry it in our pocket. And from that, we have music and we have directions and we have uh, all our phone books and we have, you know, this amazing capability of doing almost anything in this little, you know, which is smaller than a deck of cards.
0: Is that okay. the fussy is that the fussy little group that would always change the doomsday clock every time President yes, Reagan held a right. news conference? That's right.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: You know, given your career and what you studied and all the things that you've been involved in, when you were at Reykjavik or any anything else, the UN or whatever, at a certain part did you say, Damn, Ken, you've come a long way. It's pretty no, freaking it's pretty freaking cool to be sitting here in a room waiting for the president of the United States to walk out and say here's what the leader of the Soviet Union and I just discussed.
1: No, I did not say that. I said damn Ken, I'm pretty lucky to, <laughs> to be here. <laughs> <coughs> and secondly, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> damn Ken. I found this open. I don't know how this ever happened. I mean, this was an <laughs> amazing succession of Uh, mishaps or errors or, uh, you know, fluky things to, to, to put me there.
0: There's a famous picture at the end of the Reykjavik summit where President Reagan is looking at Gorbachev with sort of a, you know, well... I'm upset that it didn't, we didn't get accomplished what we wanted to get accomplished. And I'm sure you've seen the picture of Reagan, president Reagan's in his kind of cream colored raincoat overcoat. Yeah. He's kind of looking at him shrugging like, well, you know, we tried hard, but we couldn't get it done. And that led not only the picture, but also the outcome of the summit led a lot of people at the time to deem it a failure. How would you respond? If I said, Ambassador Edelman, the Reykjavik summit was just a failure. Your rebuttal would be?
1: Well, uh, Peter Jennings asked me that on ABC News the afternoon when uh, the summit broke up, which was October 12th, 1986. And I said, "Uh, I don't think so. We had an agreement with the Soviet Union to really reduce nuclear weapons down to equal levels uh, at a 50 percent cut, which is enormous to eliminate, uh, practically to eliminate the intermediate missiles aimed at all the capitals of Western Europe. And uh, yes, we couldn't bring that to fruition because of SDI. But we'll be back at the table and we'll pick up where we left off on those kind of reductions. So I don't think it's a failure at all. I said that on uh, national TV and that's Sunday afternoon. Uh, They thought I was crazy. And uh, within two months, we were back at the table negotiating on the basis of what we had agreed at Reykjavik.
0: Less than a year after the Reykjavik summit, Ronald Reagan stood at the Brandenburg Gate and he gave a speech, maybe his best speech ever, certainly in the top three or four. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Any reading of this period in history details the significant, and you do as well in your book, the significant debate within the Reagan administration as to whether he should give this speech with these words, putting Gorbachev, quote, on notice or in the spotlight. What did you think of the speech and that line in particular? And did that speech make a difference when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Eastern Bloc sort of collapsed just a few years later?
1: That's one of the favorite parts of uh, my book, Reagan and Brekovich, Robert, is the controversy over him saying, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall," because in the White House at that time, I think that Ronald Reagan was just about the only one to uh, support saying that. <coughs> I think everybody else was against it, uh, even the deputy chief of staff of the White House, on the way to give the speech on June 12th, 1987, said, uh, Mr. President, as you know, a lot of people, meaning everybody, (laughs) but him, uh, (laughs) objected to using that. Why don't we just give the speech without that paragraph in there? Reagan at that time was in the limo going over to the speech, was kind of looking out the window, kind of daydreaming. In Berlin, he turned to Ken Duberstein, who is the deputy chief of staff at the White House. He said, Well, Ken, I think it's the right thing to say. And then he went back to daydreaming. And he got up, gave that speech, and it was electric. And it's probably the uh, seven most well known phrases of um, the whole Reagan administration, how uh, these 40 years later
0: the end of the 1980s. This is my last question before we get to the five questions I ask all of our guests. Uh, Time Magazine named Mikhail Gorbachev the man of the decade. I asked um, uh, Craig Shirley this question and he about came out of his chair. So that's what you're up against. Do you agree with Mikhail Gorbachev being selected as the man of the decade by Time Magazine for the 1980s? And if not him, who?
1: Uh, I very much object to Miguel, Mikhail and Gorbachev getting the Nobel Prize by himself. Okay? Exactly. Uh, if anybody deserved it by himself, uh, it was Ronald Reagan. If they had to share it, fine, I, I could uh, deal with them sharing it. But uh, not Gorbachev by himself. Gor- Gorbachev is a very interesting, Robert, leader in that he is celebrated to this day in my mind, partly totally justifiably, but he is celebrating for things being done, which he didn't want to be done. He opposed it. When he took the oath of office in 1985, March of 8, 1985, he didn't want the collapse of the Soviet Union. He didn't want the empire of Eastern Europe to go from the Soviet uh, stranglehold. He didn't want the discrediting of the communist doctrine. Uh, he didn't want any of those things. The only person who really wanted all those things was Ron Reagan. All right. So can you celebrate somebody for accomplishing, quote, unquote, things that they not only didn't want, but opposed? And that's what the situation of Gorbachev today.
0: And no American president could ever be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize if he had presided over a nuclear meltdown like what happened in Chernobyl and then hide right it from are. the world. Right, you are we reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we asked the same five questions of all of our guests. Ambassador Edelman, are you ready? Mm-hmm. What was your I don't first... know what
1: the questions are so...
0: <laughs> I, I promise this is not, not this is not the church <laughs> committee. I promise. Okay. What was your first job?
1: My first job was selling waitress uniforms, going door to door in downtown Chicago after school to get enough money for college.
0: That's as unique as it. Number two, what was your first concert? Concert, yes, sir.
1: Uh, uh, that I attended was probably one because our daughter is a violinist and. Probably at uh, Interlochen uh, Academy of the Arts in uh, Michigan, uh, some concert that she was performing
0: at. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend?
1: I can't be one I wrote.
0: <laughs> well, we're Republicans, sure, or we're we're conservatives, sure. <laughs> I think people would
1: enjoy Reagan at Reykjavik, but uh, it sounds awfully egotistical to say that.
0: Let me ask another question that's kind of affiliated to that. What's your favorite book, not not written by you, on Reagan or the Reagan presidency? Um,
1: I do like uh, Lou Cannon's Books, mm. you know, the role of, the life. role of a
0: lifetime. Mm-hmm.
1: I think I think that's really, really quite good. Um and there are others, Peggy Noonan's book, What I Saw Thought the Revolution. The Revolution. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Um Mike Deavers book, with Reagan, or Marching to His Own drummer that's very good. There are a lot of wonderful Reagan books because subject is so rich Ronald reagan
0: it's a, it's a terrible day but the, the, the book rawhide down about his shooting on march 30th 1981 that is a terrific book
1: yes will
0: you really learn how close he came to dying
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: fourth question if you could witness any event in history be there in person as it happens which event would you choose
1: I would say I would have loved to be at D-Day, probably, Um, just because the stakes were so high, the organization was so massive, and uh, the bravery was so clear.
0: So when you watch the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan? no, I know. It's wonderful. Last question. If you could have dinner, this is probably tough, or maybe it's easy because you've had dinner with so many amazing people, but if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose?
1: I think it would be Zelensky. Uh, I just think he's an amazing leader. Uh, And uh, we weren't prepared, just like we weren't prepared for Ron Reagan to be such a leader. Uh, We certainly weren't prepared for somebody who is a professional comic, comedian, and television star to have such fortitude and such clarity and such ability to communicate, such inspiration. I think we should all be extremely grateful to Zelensky for making it clear the difference between freedom and oppression for countries that believe in their national uh, destiny and countries that want to take over other countries and oppress those other countries. So, um, you know, it would be a 22 hours. I feel very, very guilty taking the two hours for that dinner <laughs> with Zelensky. He's a busy guy and he has more important things to do than have dinner with me.
0: You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Ambassador Ken Adelman. Author of several books, including the absolutely brilliant, and if you love history, read this book, Reagan at Reykjavik, 48 Hours That Ended the Cold War. Ambassador Edelman, it's been a, a truly an honor. I've enjoyed the discussion very much, and I'm very grateful for your time.
1: Robert, it's been a treat for me, so thank you for doing it.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at Robert at VeteranStrategies.com. That's Robert at VeteranStrategies.com.